Hello and welcome to the Interior Design Business, a monthly podcast produced by the interior design community for the interior design community. My name is Jeff Hayward and every month we'll be taking a look at the business challenges facing interior designers. Our industry guests will be sharing their experiences of these issues and providing advice and strategies on how to deal with them so that you can grow and succeed as a designer. My co-presenter in this enterprise is Susie Rumbold, Principal of Tasuta Interiors and past president of the British Institute of Interior Design. Susie will be with us throughout the series. What's on the agenda for this episode? Today we'll be getting our teeth into one of the most talked about topics for professional interior designers, the question of interior design fees and making sure you get paid. How do you go about pricing a project? What value should you place on design? How should you deal with FF&E? How does pricing affect the perception of interior design as a profession? And ultimately, how do you ensure your client pays for the services you provide? Well, plenty of significant talking points there. Let's see what light we can shed. Welcome to the interior design business. We're podcasting from the London office of Tesuto Interiors and joined in this conversation by another BIID past president, Laurie pinkton Rollet of Brighton-based design firm Park Grove Design. Welcome, Laurie. Thank you very much. Before we start, Susie, can you just say a few words about your design background? So I've got into interior design almost by accident. I used to be in fashion retailing. I was in the buying office of Topshop for many years and uh, ended up getting made redundant and was kind of casting around thinking, what was I going to do next? And someone said to me, why don't you consider interior design? And I kind of thought it sounded like a cool idea, um, not something that I would recommend anybody try today. Okay, so tessuto, how did that flow from... So tessuto basically means fabric in Italian, and it was just a name I really liked. I set up the practice in 1993 after I got made redundant, as I said, and initially we started off doing very small domestic decorating projects for people, and gradually over the years we took on more and more work, more and more staff, became more sophisticated in our approach, and now, 25 years on, we do a whole mix of different projects across all sectors of the industry, including some private client work, some food and beverage, restaurants, a bit of office work, uh, some large multi-residential developments for developers, and that's pretty much it. Wow, really varied. So, Laurie, what's your story? Uh, I've been in the design world also for 25 years. Congratulations. Thank you, same to you. And uh, started out in media in the US, as you'll probably hear from my accent. Um, started out with very small residential projects, then started doing high-end residential. And now we do hotels, uh, care homes, dementia units. Um, we're about to do our first convent. Um, and so a, quite, a, quite a, uh, a myriad of different types of, of work. And also we've um, on our second uh, brain injury unit at the moment. Ooh, right. Well, very varied experiences there. So... I'm sure you're going to have plenty to contribute. Thank you both very much for volunteering your time to talk designer fees on the podcast today. And I think opening that conversation, it would be fair to say that there are many, many different ways that designers do charge. Susie, what's your take on 
current state of play in that space? Well, as you mentioned, I think there are probably almost as many ways to charge as there are interior designers. Um, you know, there are a whole load of different business models that people work on. Some people charge fees for their design work. Someone charge, some people charge a percentage of the cost of the project. Um, some people charge by the hour. Um, and some people just put a markup on the goods that they sell to their clients. And then there's the whole range in between of people that do a bit of this and a bit of that. OK. Is that your experience too, Laurie? Yes, I mean, it was quite different. When we were doing residential work, the first project that I ever did, and I was on my own at that point, I got to the end of the job and they gave me more money than what I'd asked. They said, you completely underpriced this because I had done a flat fee because I was so desperate to get into the industry. Um, with time, when we were still doing residential, I ended up charging an hourly rate, which was monitored biweekly and updated to the client so that they could still control what they were paying in terms of fees. But if they were going to go to Aunt Susie's house on the weekend, sorry, that was the wrong name to pick, <laughs> Aunt Joan's house on the weekend, and say, well, now I want a completely different scheme because I've just seen something else and we'd already finished something that they'd approved, I do want to get paid for that extra time, therefore the the hourly rate. And that seemed to work out okay for people. For commercial work, however, we always do a fixed fee mm -hmm. with a schedule of work directly related to what it is that they will be getting for that amount of money. So it pays to have flexibility? I think so. Different uh, things will be right for different clients, different user groups. Years ago, we also used to charge by the hour. And actually, we found that clients over time really, really, really hated it. So they're always very happy to pay your first two or three invoices. And then further down the track, they're kind of going, hang on a minute, you spent three hours sorting out the order for my sofa. How can that be possible? And so, you know, you then have to justify yourself and you're always going back and you're always in, a, in an argument. And so we, you know, I think over 25 years, we've tried every possible way of charging that there is and then a few I made up and almost all of them were terrible um, and eventually we've come down to the fact that we always charge a fixed fee and sometimes we win and sometimes we lose but at least there's complete transparency and the clients know right from the off because the other downside about doing it on an hourly rate I think is the fact that if it's a if they have a budget and they don't know how big the fee is going to be every bit of fee that they spend is eating into the budget that they want to be spending on things for their yes. home with private clients. So it's understanding and empathising with where the client is at as much as anything before you put your pricing yeah, together. Yeah, I think so. But I think it's, 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 it's understanding for the clients and you to understand what it is they're asking you to do. Because I don't know whether you find this, but quite often they haven't got the foggiest idea what they're asking for when they first approach you. Sometimes the commercial clients don't necessarily know either unless yeah. they're part of a group and have, have done these sorts of projects many times before. Or sometimes they have a professional project manager who might be helping steer them. But yes, you're right. Mm -hmm. So it's about educating clients as much as anything. I think so. And making sure that you're covered. So, for example, we started implementing quite a while back now a 10% booking deposit, uh, which started actually with residential clients, but then also went into commercial. And in that way, because you might need to get quite a, a tranche of work done before you put your first invoice in, then you have the invoice period, your terms as, in terms of how long they have to pay you could, as a designer or running a design studio, be out of pocket for quite a bit of money. Mm -hmm. And if by doing a booking deposit, it means that they are committed to you, even if you haven't gotten to the point of signing the contract, they're putting money on the table, 
therefore we will book that work in and therefore you're sort of covered as a designer and there's a bit of a buy-in on both parties. And the um, clients are receptive to that? Uh, we have never had it questioned, mm. ever. And then it means that the rest of the of the fee structure is broken down minus that 10%, um, which means even if you got to the end of the job and for whatever reason you never got your final payment, you would still you would have only lost a, a smaller amount than if you'd lost an entire month's worth of, of work. So effectively, you're never working in arrears? Never. Which is, is fantastic for your cash flow. Yeah. I mean, historically, what would you say is the most popular, been the most popular method? Well, I think originally um, most interior decorators, if I make the distinction between decorators and designers, used to just uh, charge a percentage or a retail markup on the stuff that they sold to their clients. Mm. But I think um, probably Laurie would agree with me that that's just changing because people now do so much more drawing, we produce so much more information, the expectation for the information that's being produced on each project and the level of accuracy that clients are demanding is just so huge. So a lot of our fees now are actually design-based. And so those just, just charging a retail markup is something that's kind of fading away. And also it leaves you very exposed because you've done a lot of stuff up front and you don't actually get paid until you start purchasing, which could be months down the track. And I know a few years ago there was a, there was a kind of well-known phenomenon around St John's Wood <laughs> where there were a bunch of ladies in St John's Wood who were actively trying to see how many interior designers they could get running around in ever-decreasing circles on their behalf oh, no. at the same time for the same project. So they would go after three or four interior designers and everyone would be running around producing schemes and then they'd simply cherry-pick the ones they want and not use any of the designers. Ooh. Ooh, indeed. Yeah, but indeed. if you put your 10% booking deposit down, yeah. that would be prevented. I mean, there is another issue with charging a mark up of any kind. And if it's a, a percentage or if it's a, a difference and I'm showing a client something very expensive and something quite a bit less expensive, I want to be paid for my knowledge base and why I believe a particular uh, uh, solution is correct for their project. And if they think there's something financially in it for me, it takes the neutrality out. So the knowledge base is what I want to get paid for, not for selling things per se. And what about clients actually valuing your design, I mean, are they happy to pay for design? Yes, I think more and more they are. Uh, I think more and more as they understand what we do, as there are publications about how interior designers work, how to hire interior designers, all that kind of thing. I think, but I, I think it, that's the nub of it. I think it's about so many clients who still really don't understand what interior designers do and don't understand the value of design. We've got a lady at the moment who is... She's, terribly sweet but you know I gave her a fee proposal and she clearly didn't understand it didn't read it didn't ask we did some of the work she then asked for other stuff we gave her a second fee proposal she's still referring back to the first one this went on and on and after about three goes at this I sort of said right I'm going to start again I'm going to give you a list of every single thing that I think you need and you can choose you can treat it as a shopping list and just cherry pick the bits that you want so we've now gone forward working with her on that basis and we're charging extra for meetings and things so sometimes I think perhaps you just have to be again what you came back to earlier was to be a bit flexible with your clients, mm. but not all of them do understand the, the need for actual design work or value it. I think sometimes they think we uh, pick things, we shop. I think sometimes, honestly, residential clients think that that is, is the role and we have quote-unquote taste. And 
it's a much more nuanced and uh, level of, of, of skill and understanding than I think people realize. So just to give you a very brief example, the tragic case of Eric Clapton's son falling out the window in New York, it wasn't at, at, to his death, mm. um, young boy. It, the person found legally responsible for that was the interior designer. It wasn't the cleaner who left the window open. It wasn't the fact that they had had moved a piece of furniture that the child could climb up. But because the building was being renovated under the heading of an interior designer and they hadn't put bars at the window, which was a, a health and safety requirement in that environment, the interior designer was found responsible. So there's all there are all sorts of levels of health and safety issues of uh, fire containment absolutely yeah lots and lots of things that we are aware of that have nothing to do with quote-unquote shopping or picking colors Mm. but how easy is it to explain that to the client at the start in the first meetings i mean that's you could be there talking to them for hours couldn't you About all the terrible, terrible things that yeah. could conceivably yeah, exactly. go wrong. You must hire budget. us because, <laughs> because <laughs> we will prevent. But I, I think that's one of the things about um, the, the new um, construction and design management 2015 regulations that you know interior designers now are often finding themselves in the situation where they're acting as princi- in the role of principal designer, which means we're responsible for health and safety on those projects. And we, in particular, are now building a section into our fees if we're undertaking that role. Um, to say this is the amount of money that we are having to charge you in order to to make sure that that's all done, um, you know. So we, there is a there is. I mean, in, in that instance, the law has come to our help because you know clients say, well, I don't want to pay this, and I'm saying, well, you know, you have to appoint someone or you have to do it yourself. So if you don't want to do it yourself, you have to pay someone, and that someone probably is going to be me. Yeah, I think that's an important lesson for anyone listening. Don't you? Yes, I, I I do too. I mean, one of the things. I don't know how we would price anything without a, a detailed scope of works, um, which we have as a, a template that includes everything from research, which can be very much part of projects. Sometimes the client wants to get involved in that. Sometimes they don't. All the way down um, through levels of, of detail, electrical drawings, plumbing runs, things that the client doesn't necessarily realize is, is involved they if they yeah. if they're saying we're you know we're going to refurbish a bathroom um it, it's not just here's you know here's a, a very attractive basin uh that you're involved with is there the correct falls on the plumbing is there you know will that actually work with where the waste pipe is coming out on the outside of the building and 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 um what's happening with ventilation all that sort, sort of thing mm-hmm. falls within our remit as designers I mean, we get around that sometimes if the clients really don't understand what they're asking for by giving them a sort of a small fee just to do a sort of concept design and space planning and a bit of a feasibility study. Mm. And they're often quite happy to dip a toe in the water and just buy. I suppose that's in a way that's the equivalent of your deposit, although it's not charged up front. It's charged once we've completed it. But we usually will build in for, say one meeting, one set of revisions, so that it's just something that they can kind of get their head around and they begin then to understand what the scope of what they're asking for is. And then we can go back to them and say, OK, right, we've we've done that bit. Now, these are the deliverables. If you want me to give you this project completed, you are going to need these drawings, you're going to need these professionals, this is what you're going to need. Um, and, yeah, and then that becomes the basis then of the, the detailed, broken-down yes. fee. Including budgets. 
In the old days, I think we had a reputation for, you know, if you bring a designer in, they're going to have expensive taste, your costs are going to go up. And in, in fact, the opposite is true because we have suppliers at a whole bunch of price points. When we're given a budget, because we know all of what's involved in, from the construction side down to the what is being physically brought into the site, we're able to break down that budget in a way that a client never would and in a way that a contractor never would. So that middle position actually is uh, financially a really good place for a client to be. No, absolutely. And I, and I also think that's part of the interior designer's key skill is taking a, a less than fabulous budget and actually delivering something that's really, really, really fantastic for the client. That's where we really come into our own. If you've got unlimited budget, of course, you're going to produce something gorgeous because the sky's the limit. But if you take a really small budget and make it look you know, magnificent, then you've really, really done your job. And those are the clients, I think, that end up being completely delighted with the result. And also you get a, you, you get when you get pushed into that particular corner, the only way out of it is creatively. And so I think actually some of our better solutions to things have been when we've been boxed in by budget and, oh my goodness, we really need to make a splash yeah, here. Exactly. How do I do that? What envelope am I pushing out here? Which is, of course, the opposite of shopping. It's designing. Absolutely. Which yes, is why so we true. want to get paid for design. Of course. Of course. And I think those points you've made are great at the outset of a project, but obviously things change. Clients change their minds. Clients want you to do more or go back and redo things so how do you deal with that because that's as the project's in progress so I think that's where it, your original fee proposal if it's clear and complete and concise and you've been very specific about how many sets of revisions how many meetings you are going to undertake at each stage so that you can say well okay we've given you five goes at this you know if you, we're very happy to do it for you again, but you have to appreciate that, you know, this is going to be extra time and I will have to charge you some more fees. And one of two things will happen. They'll either go back and accept the first thing you gave them or they'll ask you to do it again and they'll be happy to pay for it. The other thing I was going to say is as a designer in commercial projects, you always definitely want to be the egg and not the chicken. What do you mean by that? <laughs> you want to come after. You want the egg comes, you have to have a chicken to have an egg. And that is, if you're working with a lot of different consultants, they will be doing updates. So you may say, I'm going to do three revisions. However, the M&E consultant may do 20 as they're designing the um, infrastructure of the building. The structural engineer is going to make changes. And so when you're updating your drawings, you want to be the last one in the queue. You want to wait till everyone's done theirs. So the very first commercial job we did, boy, I was going to show everybody how interactive we were and responsive. I lost so much money. Because, because we every designed time, it 25 times. Yeah, exactly. Every time somebody did an update, boy, Interiors was right in there with our updates, and we lost a pile of money. Um, so it's about managing that element of your own time. And what you're talking about really is this freezing process so that every consultant down the picking order has to freeze. They have to get to the point where they've frozen what they're doing before the next person works on it. And invariably, there will always be revisions. But you'll go back, you know, the, the M&E consultant will decide actually the aircon plant can't go where he'd originally proposed it because of other constraints or there's a beam in the way or whatever it might be. So, you know, there will always be some toing and froing. But I think, and, and for smaller projects, if you... Say to, we always say to the clients, at this point you will freeze the drawings, which means that you will make no further changes, which then allows us to get on with the detail. Because if they're still moving the walls around while you're still trying, while you're trying to design the bathroom elevations, you're going to end up doing it 25 times again and you won't get paid. 
Right. Right. And that, that can be very dangerous. So where you're doing, where you're coming in, in those cycles is, is very important. And in terms of a fixed price fee, do you look at the square footage of the project and how do you weigh up what no, you charge no. for No, I said with one voice, no, I, we just, I'm sure you do the same thing. You work out what your deliverables are and you price them. And we've been doing it for so long. We know that bathroom's going to take so many hours and a you know, panelling or a staircase is going to take so many hours and lighting designs are going to take so many hours and the small power is going to take so many hours and so on and so forth. And then you have time for sourcing, time for ordering of samples, time for producing um, mood boards or whatever else you're doing, visuals, 3D things for the client, and you just literally price each one and that's the fee. And that is actually that time also has some flexibility to it. So when we give our scope of works to somebody... There's a column they don't see, which is on the on the right-hand side on our screens, which says how many days, for example, we're going to put to this that. But if the client says, well, actually, this is a bit high, well, what would you like to take out? Do you not need four visuals? If you don't need four visuals, I'll Have drop two. the price right now. Yeah. So that it becomes an interactive document so that they get what they pay for and we get paid for what it is that we do. And that's about as fair as you can be, I think. I mean, I think what people don't really understand about projects is it's not like walking into a shop and buying some coffee mugs. Clients have an amount of money on a product that they want to buy. And we have to get from that point the amount of money to the product. So we have to produce the product for the amount of money. And that is the finished project. So it's pretty straightforward when you say it to them in those terms. But people get all confused in their brains about what it is that they're actually commissioning. Yes, yeah. And they're commissioning an overall vision, not a thing. Um, and where there, uh, where sometimes there was conflict in residential stuff was when everybody thought, well, you know, uh, my husband really wants this TV and I really want this sofa and, and we really want this. And nothing went together. Everything was its own focal point and everything was. And what the designer does is say, we're going to balance this space. We're going to make the experience of the environment fantastic. And that doesn't necessarily mean that every single thing in it has to cost lots of money. It might, but it might not. It's about the environment, not the individual items. It's important then to be transparent with the client. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, we are completely transparent. We run a, an open book office um, clients can come in and look, pick up any piece of paper that relates to their project and see exactly what's going on. All our invoices relate back to the fee proposal, so it'll be on an item-by-item item basis as, as detailed in our fee proposal of X date, 2018 or 2017, whatever it happened to be. Would you say that perhaps some designers rely on a little bit of smoke and mirrors still because they're not that confident about how to charge? I hope not. I hope not too. I suspect probably there's a little bit of smoke and mirrors. I suspect it's not maybe such a deliberate thing, but it's more just that they're not as organised as perhaps they should be. And I, I think too there is a, a certain amount of backpedalling that goes on because interior designers as a breed are desperate for their clients to be delighted. We go into, we're a bit like politicians. We, we don't set out to ruin things. We set out to save the world. And, you know, we go into every <laughs> every project wanting our, wanting our clients to be so, so, so happy with the result, which tends to mean we over-deliver. So we do do too many revisions. We do do drawings. We do more meetings than we should. And then we're in a situation where we suddenly realise, oh, my goodness, we're losing money on this situation. Then you're trying to kind of claw back. And that's not really the way to, to do it. Do you agree with that, Laurie? I do. In terms of over-delivery, when we were doing hourly rates, we even used to put in, we did a half hour of calls at no charge. And we listed things that we weren't charging that were over-delivered 
so that there was maybe more of an appreciation for what was delivered and the value for money that that we were we were offering. Um, in terms of uh, being transparent, in the old days it was yes marking up, but nowadays it's more of a handling fee. Uh, and it is a flat rate, which then leads us back to the way that, that Susie also operates, which is we've got open book accounting. You can come and look at any document, but in fact, we do need to charge something for handling the goods, even though we're not making a living selling things. We're making a living designing things, designing spaces. But we have legal and financial liability for whatever we're providing to the client, and therefore you need to be remunerated for taking on that risk. To absolutely, absolutely, yeah. absolutely, yeah. yeah. And and sorting it out when heaven forbids, you know, they deliver the wrong thing or it doesn't fit or you know whatever might happen. Never, never, <laughs> never. Perhaps there's a bigger question because architects, it's a fee-based approach. So should we not be moving exclusively to that sort of way of? Doing That's a bit of a tricky one. I think it's heading in two directions. So I think interior designers are moving much more towards a fee-based approach and things like CAD and, as I said earlier, the amount of drawing that we all do now, you know, those are design time, those are design hours that you need to be paid for. But at the same time, architects are realising that architecture is only part of the process. So lots of architectural practices are actually now employing interior designers and most of the big practices have their own interior design departments. So it's a two-way it's a two-way traffic. So architects that say, oh, no, 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 they only provide professional services, sometimes that's a bit disingenuous. But you have to realise that all of this is relatively new. The interior design profession itself is relatively new. It's become quite a different animal. You can have somebody spending three months detailing a roof package they're not going to be designing the doorknobs. They're not necessarily going to be doing the interiors. So that's sort of, we came out of a void, if you will, that was was created by both legislation and technology. And it probably will be a little back and forth for a while till we everybody finds their place. But we definitely pick up on things that architects don't. A lot of architectural practices or architectural schools, people will graduate, they will know nothing about the period of different architectural design. And lots of times the interior designers are called upon for expertise in completely different areas. Um, so we're all needed nowadays. Yeah, absolutely. And things like working with, we have such an enormous stock of listed and heritage buildings in this country, for example. And it's normally it's going to be an experienced interior designer that takes on the faithful restoration of some of those precious spaces, much more so than an architect who would be more concerned with the shell of the building. Yes, mm-hmm. and materials exactly. for the shell yeah. and that, yeah. So in terms of pricing, are there any sanity checks that a designer can employ to make sure they've got it about right? Well, you mentioned earlier the the idea of doing it on a, on a square footage. So what we quite often do is we'll take the fee that we've generated from the deliverables that we reckon the client needs and then we look at the footage and we divide that back in and see what that's working out at because the professional fees on a job should be anywhere between, I don't know, 10 or 15% if you talk to a QS. So if we can see that our fee is working out at 25%, it's probably too high. We've either overcooked it or it might just be that this job doesn't require that level of interior design input. I suppose that's the same thing, really, isn't it? And and there may be rollouts of things. So, for example, on a hotel project, you may do each floor a different way, but you're not necessarily designing entirely separate suites in, throughout the entire hotel. And the same thing in care homes. 
we may come up, you know, there was one we did 15 different schemes. Usually we're doing somewhere between three to five. So it will very much depend on the, on the client how many, um, yeah, how or, many things overlap. Or yeah. sometimes when we do big developments of apartments, we might do two apartments, two typical apartments, a one-bedroom and a two-bedroom in enormous detail, and then it's down to the contractor to take that and, f and we then build a certain amount of on-site supervision into, into our fee proposal. So we go on site and help the contractor, but then it's down to the contractor to roll out faithfully that design across the rest of the, the project. So there are lots of different ways you can do it, but it's in terms of other sanity checks. So that's one way. And then the other way, we also look at the client's budget because, again, if, if the fee ends up is 25% of the budget, then you know it's too high. Mm. On the other hand, if it's 3% of the budget, it's probably too low. Indeed. Yeah. You won't be in design for very long if it's 3%. No. Um, what sort of advice would you give to designers who are unsure? Where can they go to get advice or, or be better at pricing if they are concerned? I would say we've, we've got a number of um, documents uh, within the um, British Institute of Interior Design um, that are published, many of which with the um, RIBA Enterprises, that, that break this down as, um, for, as information and basically tick lists for people. So it's really specific. It's not subjective. It becomes a much more objective exercise, especially for new designers. That's got to be helpful. Oh, no, extremely helpful. I mean, there's the, at a basic level, there's the client's guide, which is just available free on the BIID website that anyone can download. But I think, Laurie, you were talking earlier about the job book. Yes, I think that the, the uh, BIID job book goes into all sorts of professional practice elements and really, as I said, breaks them down into being objective. And then you can also use this to show your clients if there are questions about, you know, why is this this way? Well, this is what we're doing. We're doing all of these things on this printed, published document. It becomes less woolly and more really specific as in terms of what we're providing. Okay. And they realise you're not making it up. Yeah. Always good. Now, moving on from pricing, how on earth can you make sure you actually get paid? Uh, it's always the $10,000 question, $60,000 question, $100,000 question. How much do you get paid? <laughs> uh, not as much as that. But um, I, think, I think, again, it comes down to making sure that your, if your fee proposal is right and you're charging accurately against your fee proposal, there shouldn't be too many problems. Um, there will always be issues when clients say, well, you haven't delivered this or you haven't delivered this to my satisfaction, you know, it's at, the, at which point it, be, it becomes a negotiation. So I think the more transparent and the better your relationship is with the client, the less likelihood you have for things going wrong, but it's it's never 100%. And you made the point, Laurie, that if you've you've got your 10% deposit, then if you something horrible happens and you never, you never get that last invoice paid, actually, you can walk away and sleep at night. But also we offer as part of our sort of scope of works and as part of the contract a, um, a fee drawdown with date months on which this, these amounts will be due so that in terms of getting financing through, um, whether you have to clear these things with a board or, or somebody else or whether it's a, a, a private residence where they need to transfer money over, they know the amount that will be due and approximately when that will be due so that those funds are already at hand. Because otherwise you can get into a system where there are all sorts of reasons for not getting paid. But if you set it up ahead of time as part of your contract, you stop working. 
It's about being a professional business person. Yeah. You know, you wouldn't pick up a car or you wouldn't get something from a, a department store unless it had been paid for. And that includes services. Somebody's going out from a department store to measure up for curtains. They're not going to do that unless they're paid. So it's, it's just about making sure that we're also acting professionally. Yeah. Indeed. And do you both use contracts? Oh, yes, always. Yeah, absolutely always. I don't think our insurances would cover us if we did not. No. And we have to be insured um, for the protection of our, ourselves and our staff. And um, the public. And, and the public and to be a member of any professional organization. Um, and without a contract, you're just simply not covered. And it's also about good customer relations. Absolutely. And I think it's also about promoting interior design as a true profession. Excellent. From the moment you walk into the Crestron showroom, you're immersed into a world of invisible, high-end technology. Designed to showcase a London-style apartment, you're able to see just how remarkable Crestron technology is and how its solution can complement any home's interiors or design. All of the Crestron technology is built to work together, providing an amazingly personalised and worry-free system that is easy to use, easy to modify and upgrade, and easy to maintain. Crestron provides you with the best user experience possible at the heart of everything we design, including lighting control, motorised shades, including blinds and curtains, audio, video distribution, touchscreens and remotes, mobile control, thermostats and sensors, security, and much more. Our showroom offers everything to suit your lifestyle, from the latest range of keypads and faceplates to suit every client's interior desires, to the wide range of our roller fabrics for our motorised shades to complement the colour schemes around your home. The perfect place for designers to come and see the latest in home technology. We're based in the Chelsea Design Centre, second floor, South Dome. Now... What makes an interior designer become the business person they are? Is it one eureka moment or a series of interconnected events? It's something we'd all like to know and perhaps take some inspiration from. I'm delighted that Laurie has kindly agreed to share her single most influential experience with our listeners. So, Laurie, what was your interior design life changer? Uh, a fingernail. Um, and let, me, let me explain. Uh, <laughs> We hit the last recession, and we had been doing a lot of uh, residential work, mainly residential work. And uh, I had to make some people redundant. The company was still going on. I thought, what am I going to do? And I was, I had to move house and downsize. It was really, it was really quite uh, dramatic. And I was sitting behind the moving van, having moved to Brighton from London, awaiting the keys and the estate agent when the phone rang, which is what I'd been waiting for, for, you know, the previous four months. And it was, it was a client whose house we had worked on for two years. We had gutted and done the entire thing over again. And I'll call the clients Cal and Kathy for argument's sake. That's not their names, obviously. Um, and Cal was on the f on the phone and said, you must come over here right now and completely strip out Kathy's bathroom. You must rip the whole thing out and you must start again. And I said, uh, why on earth? What has happened? And he said, Kathy has just broken a fingernail flushing the toilet. And let me just explain to you that the toilet didn't have a, a flush. It had a hand push plate, a great big 
plate. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, first of all, why would you do that with a fingernail anyway? But secondly, I thought, easiest decision I ever made in my life. I said, I'm so sorry, Cal, but we don't do residential work anymore. And I decided <laughs> at that exact moment that my life was way too short and that if I felt like throttling the clients, it was probably time to do commercial. And so that was, that was my eureka moment and the, and the big change of direction in, in my company. That's brilliant. That's such a great story. Down. Yeah. No regrets? <laughs> none. None. And it's, it suited me. And I have to say, residential suited me when I was doing that too, which is why this is such a fantastic career choice in that there are lots of different directions. I mean, there are people that just design prisons. There are people that interior design airplanes. There's all sorts of directions. So there's lots that will suit different types of personalities and, and skill sets. But I'm done with the fingernails. Just convents now. Yeah, just convents, yeah. <laughs> Less high maintenance, yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you both for that excellent discussion on fees and how to get paid. And thank you, Laurie, for that brilliant story about fingernails and for giving us insights into interior design for convents, a new marketplace if ever there was one. <laughs> Next month, we'll be talking about managing contractors with advice on how you can make these relationships work for your client and your business. You can find the interior design business on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and podcast services everywhere. You can also follow us on Twitter and on Instagram, where you can access industry-relevant news, useful resources and links to the topics we discuss. This episode of the interior design business is brought to you with the support of Crestron and is a Wildwood and Alfie Media production.